This is the Monday, February 6th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back for Black History Month to meet a forgotten hero in the fight for equality. Our subject was not a preacher or a politician, an agitator or an author. He was just a man with a bicycle. But what a man he was. Born Marshal Walter Taylor in November of 1878, he was the son of an Indiana Civil War veteran, and from that humble start, the world would one day call him Major and sing his praises. Our guest is Terry Kerber, who along with his brother Conrad, co-authored Major Taylor, the inspiring story of a black cyclist and the men who helped him achieve worldwide fame. You can find the Kerber Brothers at MajorTaylor.com and on Facebook at their Major Taylor page. It's one of many pages about Major Taylor, so make sure you choose the right one. Terry Kerber is a senior partner at an investment firm for which he's in charge of investment research, client wealth management, and public speaking. Terry has been an advocate for the importance of mentoring at-risk father-absent children. He also loves to travel on cycling and hiking adventures to learn more about the historical and cultural aspects of various regions. Okay, now that we've pumped up our tires, let's travel back to the turn of the last century with Terry Kerber, where we'll meet Major Taylor. I'm joined on the line by Terry Kerber, co-author of Major Taylor, the inspiring story of a black cyclist and the men who helped him achieve worldwide fame. Thank you for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Thanks for having me. Writing with your brother seems like an incredible task. I wrote a cookbook with my wife, and I know writing with somebody that you're close with can be a challenge. This seems to be a really seamless labor of love, which I guess is similar to doing something with your wife. You know, you want to do something you love together. It brings you closer. You and Conrad are the kind of authors I really love to read, love to watch you work through your book. You found this man, Marshall Taylor, who had been forgotten by history, and you didn't stop looking into him until you could write a biography that did him justice. So how did you first start on this track, and why co-write it with your brother? Well, again, Dean, thanks for having me on this show. And uh, my brother and co-author Conrad and I, have three passions in life, really, and we share the same passions, but one is cycling, one is history, and one is writing. So 
it was perhaps inevitable that we would come across this fascinating story of one of the greatest legends America ever forgot. And this started about 10 years ago when we were shopping online for an antique high-wheel bicycle. And that's when we first saw a soundbite on Major Taylor. And from that very first moment, we were hooked. And we couldn't understand how Taylor never hit the radar in the genre of all-time greatest athletes stories. So for the next five years after that, we were just obsessed with research. And then the more that we delved into Taylor's history and that of early bicycle racing in general, which I'll just define, were the years 1880 to about 1910. That was the heyday period there. But we were amazed to learn that it was arguably the most popular sport with some of the highest paid athletes worldwide. It seems like if you read it and they told you it was just a fictional script, you would say, oh, okay, that makes more sense. But to have never heard of this athlete, especially when we love sports so much, right? It seems impossible. He just got eclipsed. Yeah, you know, in the back of the book, that's why it was so important to us. After five years of doing the research, the process that we went through just to get it published, I mean, the, the five years and then paying translators to translate the French and the German, right. and even that wasn't easy because it was 1901 French, and that's a different dialect than what they're using today. And that's why in the back of the book, we actually put over 1,200 sources because there was so much of it that kept seeming to be unbelievable to us. I thought, God, if you're going to record this, you can't just write it. you got to put a really heavy-duty notes in the back so people can actually go look at those sources and see that that really happened. I love that when I pick up a book. Yeah. I like to be able to find and look it up, and especially something like this where, you know, I read it a couple of months ago now, I guess, maybe. So it's good to be able to dig in there. I could look up the names and things sure. like that. So I appreciated it. Major Taylor was an African-American and competed against a, a hostile all-white competition made between forty and fifty thousand dollars in each of the years nineteen oh three and nineteen oh four. So that's a lot of money today, but to put it in context for the period, Babe Ruth did not sign a twenty thousand dollar contract until nineteen twenty, which was seventeen years later. Wow. And remember now this is the first this is a half century before Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier. So even more fascinating, as we kind of got into the story, we learned that Taylor had turned down an additional $30,000 because he was a devout Christian and refused to race on Sundays. So as early as 1899, when Taylor is only 21 years old, he turned down $15,000 offer to race in Europe for three months. And again, some more context, that was more money than Ty Cobb made in baseball 16 years later. <laughs> and given the fact that the average American at that time made about $500 a year, Taylor was in effect turning down more money for three months than the average American would have made in a 30-year working career. And also before income tax. So it's even more, yep. he puts that in his pocket. It's an incredible amount. And it tells you something about how popular the sport is. Yeah. In fact, as far as fans go, during Taylor's career, which was about 1896 to uh, 1908, uh, it was not uncommon for crowds of thirty to 50,000 fans that would pay to watch him race in cities all over the world. I mean, he raced in New York and Philadelphia and Paris, Berlin and Sydney, Australia. So he was all over the globe. The book opens with a quote that also says something about the bicycle in this era where it's new. It's amazing to think of it. First, it's kind of the bike is magic, then the car has become magic. It's a quote by H.G. Wells, and he says, cycle tracks will abound in utopia. 
I wanted you to illustrate for us the place this new sport of bicycling holds in the popular imagination during the turn of the last century and how it really paves the way and how Major Taylor himself paves the way for the blockbuster professional sports that come much later. Yeah, actually, you know, as hard as it is for us to imagine this today, between the years 1870 and 1900, remember, this is before automobiles, the main form of transportation for most Americans was by horse, and if you were lucky enough to own one, a bicycle. But before being widely accepted, cyclists called wheelmen at that time were loathed by horsemen, which caused a bitter feud that lasted for three decades. In fact, the original seeds of what we're calling road rage today started not between cars and bicycles, but among the horsemen, which was the dominant transportation at that time, and then these newly fangled wheelmen. So during that period, I mean, it was fascinating to learn that uh, newspapers were snowed under with bicycle-related ads and commentary that detailed every aspect of not just the sport, but the popularity of this as a recreational activity. And 1893 was the first year that Americans bought more bicycles than horses, and in that same year, one-third of all patents were bicycle-related. Wow. So barbers would have spoke about bicycles during your haircut, doctors during exams, and preachers during sermons. (laughs) And in fact, in 1895, the New York Tribune wrote, the bicycle phenomenon is one of much larger importance than all the victories and defeats of Napoleon. Wow. Really a revolution. Yeah, everybody wanted to own a bike. It was kind of a humorous thing we saw in the New York Times. If you couldn't afford one, you would just use a little American ingenuity, as one man did when he ran a classified ad which read, Will swap my wife, 28 (laughs) years old and trim looking, for any two-wheel bicycle. So at that time, professional cyclists were the men of the hour, and this soft-spoken, off-persecuted, kind-to-a-fault black men led the way, and I think that was remarkable. This is the height of the Jim Crow era, which some of us may need to be reminded of at this point in history. This is not just the most popular athlete in America, though, but also the world. He's not a baseball player, which you might think. You talked about Ty Cobb. We did an interview about Ty Cobb, a terrible beauty, with Charles Learson recently, which is also around this time. But it's this man, Marshall W. Major Taylor, how is it possible? It just seems incredible that he comes from being a second-class citizen to being the first citizen in many ways, an ambassador unofficial for America around the world. You know, that's a good way to describe him. Baseball, of course, wasn't popular in either Europe or Australia. You know, Europe was soccer, Australia was cricket. But during the peak of the worldwide bicycle craze, Bicycle racing was the most universally popular sport, and Taylor's name and his amazing accomplishments were seen everywhere. He was covered by not only daily by small and large newspapers in America, but by newspapers in Europe and Australia as well. Your subtitle refers to some of the men who helped Major Taylor achieve worldwide fame. I wanted to start with some of those names, wanted to tick them off a little bit, and I think it's important to note that This is an incredible story, too. I think that if you wrote this as a fictional book about Major Taylor, some people would probably think, well, he sort of needs these white men to be able to achieve something. And Or maybe they would go negative the other way and say, well, they were using him. 
it's really something, the spot that he lands in, you could see where he gets his devout faith. He's very blessed by this series of men that do take a liking to him, that do help him out, that don't ignore him, that don't treat him poorly or just as so many athletes do even today, take advantage of him, look at him just as a meal ticket. The first man is Daniel Southard, who gives him his very first bicycle. That's a moment that I love, that kind of moment where a person does something so simple, maybe they even forget about it, and yet it ends up changing history, and the name Daniel Southard ends up in a history book. So who was he? Is that all we know about him, that he gave him the bike? And how does he affect the life of this man who comes to be known as Major Taylor with that first set of wheels? Well, little is known about the Southards, but what we did learn is that Taylor's father worked as a coachman for the Southards, and they were a wealthy Indianapolis railroad family. Marshall became best friends with their son, Daniel, whose parents saw to it that both boys were clothed, fed, privately tutored, and as it turns out, probably most importantly, provided with bicycles, which Taylor's parents could not afford at that time because bicycles were very expensive. So Cost you a wife. <laughs> yeah, it did. It was, it was a lot of money. But those two boys, white and black, played together as if there were no difference between them. And that kinship, that sense of equality formed Taylor's view of the world through, actually throughout his life. And the Southards tried to get Taylor admitted to the local YMCA in Indianapolis, which actually denied his access. And as a young little kid, that's where Taylor was first introduced to what he called the monster of prejudice that would unfortunately be the basis of his daily existence in America. So when Marshall uh, was around 13 years old, somewhere between his 10th and 13th year there, the Southards moved to Chicago and kind of left Taylor you know, out in the lurch now. But when he was 13 years old, he ended up landing a job at a local bicycle shop. And to attract the interest of passing horse carriages, the owner shoot him into the street to demonstrate like bike riding tricks and skills wearing a military uniform. And that's where, according to one legend, someone first uttered the word major. And little did he know that that nickname would stick with him until his death. And during the years 1896 to about 1910, that name would create headlines in newspapers that would be read by millions of people all over the world. Also, there was a more famous Major Taylor at the time, wasn't it? That's a little aside. So imagine how that goes. And that was a white man. So uh, that's also just an amazing story. It's not anything I think people would imagine it would be when I say that, that here's this young black kid and here's this powerful white man. And he says, hey, people are confusing us, but I'll leave people to read that in the book. That's also another one of these stories. He's someone so much you cheer for, someone of such dignity, and you're glad that he has good people around him. Uh, Another one is his manager, Louis Bertie Munger. What role does he play? What what does a manager do in this era exactly for a man who's a wheelman? Yeah, well, the most, for sure, the, in fact, the dedication of Taylor's autobiography was to Bertie Munger. And the most influential man in Taylor's life was Bertie Munger. And he was a tall, bird-nosed man with a booming voice and an uncanny eye for spotting racing talent. And Munger, who sometimes sported a Napoleonic mustache, was a washed-up former bike racer who turned out had invested his race winnings into his own prosperous firm, which manufactured racing bikes. And when Taylor was around 14 years old, he went to not only work for Munger, but in a very unusual thing at the time, he lived with Munger, 
who saw enormous potential in him. And for that, Munger started receiving threats from his white business partners and decided that it would be safer to relocate with Major to a more racially tolerant area, which turned out to be for them Worcester, Massachusetts. Another name, Arthur Zimmerman. What role does he play in Major Taylor's climb to greatness? Yeah, Arthur Zimmerman is another one of those forgotten big shots from that period. But Zimmerman was America's first international superstar, and he was a world champion who won over 14 bicycle races, making him one of the highest paid athletes in the world at that time. When Taylor was a young boy, he met and actually got to shake hands with Zimmerman before a race in Indianapolis. And at that meeting, Munger, who was friends with Zimmerman, told Zimmerman, I'm going to make a champion out of this boy someday. And, you know, you put yourself in the feet of this young 14-year-old kid living with his icon mentor and then being told in front of the world champion that he's going to be made a champion someday. You just have to wonder what an impact hearing those words would have had on Taylor at that exact moment. And fortunately for Taylor, Zimmerman didn't have a prejudice bone in his body. And shortly thereafter, Zimmerman actually retired and, and essentially was passing the torch to Taylor. And throughout Taylor's life, he continued to offer encouragement and support in every way that he could. As you're saying that, and I'm thinking about that moment and having read your bio and shared it with people in the intro about you and your work with children that don't have fathers, or we forget how much a kind word can do for a young person. I'm thinking of that kid there and saying, Man, if he doesn't hear that, never mind being given the bike, that was important. But just those things, being encouraged by somebody you respect. And we forget that kids look up to all of us. It doesn't matter if you are the greatest in the world. That's a nice thing. You know, if you're a former champion, that's yeah. that's fantastic to hear it from that guy. That's for sure. We still talk about what do our athletes owe us as role models. But that's a great thing to hear. But just any young person, I think of his life here, looking through all of these names. I'm going to squeeze in another one and ask you about William Brady. He's so fortunate to have these supporters, to have people that will lift him up. And he also has his faith, but he has these people who come into his life one after the other, some overlapping, and they help him. So give us a taste here of William Brady now. What's he do to help Major Taylor take the next step in his early career? Yeah, though he was a a really scrawny 135-pound man, nobody messed with William Brady, who was exactly the type of man that a pacifistic, soft-spoken African-American athlete needed on his side in the 1890s America. Brady was an unfettered, boisterous Irishman with a bottomless capacity for alcohol. And during his prodigious and diverse career, he produced over 600 Broadway plays. He was the preeminent sports promoter of his day, and he managed the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Jim Corbett. So Taylor was not allowed to join the League of American Wheelmen, which at that time had a whites-only policy, but Brady became his manager and then helped him secure his racing license and then negotiated some of his future racing contracts. So the best analogy I would be to say that William Brady, one of the most fascinating characters of his era, was for Major Taylor what Branch Rickey was for Jackie Robinson, but 50 years later. So Brady, though, just to kind of make more connections with the bicycle racing world, Brady and his wealthy syndicate controlled velodromes in New York, Boston, 
Chicago, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. And they outfitted some of those venues with as many as 25,000 seats. We saw blueprints of the one in Indianapolis, and they had billiard rooms, massage salons, and 60-piece orchestras to entertain the, the huge crowds that in those days would watch these races. And huge crowds, this is no uh, exaggeration. One very detailed report at the end of 1897 concluded that over 8 million fans paid to watch bicycle races that year. And at the annual League of American Convention in Philadelphia, over 50,000 fans attended that event each day. And that was said to be the largest paying crowd at that point in Americans' sports history. So in those years, large American cities did everything they could to actually host the League of American Wilmen annual convention, which is very much what cities are doing today when they're trying to get in line to host like the next Super Bowl. It was a big deal back then to land the League of American Wilmen convention. And 8 million, think about that, everybody, in comparison just to the population of the country back then. That's a stunning number of people. Yeah. It's America's game, really. Mm-hmm. Our guest is Terry Kerber, co-author of Major Taylor, the inspiring story of a black cyclist and the men who helped him achieve worldwide fame. You can learn more about this inspiring and fascinating American at MajorTaylorOnline.com or by liking the Kerber Brothers Facebook page. Bob Roll, NBC cycling analyst and former professional cyclist himself, writes Major Taylor is, quote, perhaps the most important book ever written about cycling in America. Before Magic, before Ali, before Jesse Owens, there was Major Taylor. And he calls your book a must-read for anyone interested in the transcendent power of the bicycle as a vehicle of real freedom. Terry, when you read words like that, which Major Taylor so richly deserves, and you get to know him through your research, and then I get to know him through reading your book as an incredible role model. He's, he's one of those people you read about and you say, that makes me want to be a better person. You know, he has dignity, he has talent, and yet he's humble. And so I wonder, how is it possible that he fell from our national memory just sort of into obscurity, into the dustbin of the American consciousness? How did that happen, this travesty? I heard uh, the expression once, a dead sport forgets its own past. And bike racing was, again, very wildly popular until car racing took center stage. And at that point, both horse and bike racing dropped off the radar. And then after World War II, California legalized gambling on horse racing. And with that and the popularity of Seabiscuit, horse racing made a comeback. So I've often, you know, thought back and I thought, you know, if at that time a promoter like William Brady had come along and lobbied for legalized betting for bike racing, the sport might have continued to hold a wider public interest. So they've been able to gamble a little, but since Major Taylor here is a man of such deep faith, for instance, he won't even race on the Sabbath, right? How do you think he would have felt about that? How did he feel about people wagering? Well, when Taylor was around 18 years old, just to get a little more detail about his faith, he embraced an adult baptism at the John Street Baptist Church in Worcester, Massachusetts. And from that moment until the day he died, he and his Bible became inseparable. And he also made a decision that day to honor a promise he had made to his mother never to race on Sundays. 
So in those days, preliminary heats, like the Indianapolis 500, the preliminary heats were Thursdays through Saturdays, but the finals for all the points and the money were on Sundays. So despite that, Taylor still finished the year 1900 with twice as many points as his nearest competitor, Frank Kramer, who the, uh, many of the East Coast newspapers were calling the Great White Hope. So everywhere Taylor went in his career, whether he was on a train or a ship, he was often seen praying quietly before the start of a race. And his faith and stance against Sunday racing would become the currency with which he would express his views of the world and eventually cause promoters and fans in America, Europe, and Australia to actually bend to his will. He raced on any day of the week as long as it wasn't Sunday, and if you wanted to see Taylor race, you would have to show up on a non-Sunday. And those personal convictions help him persevere against the many obstacles. I know I talked about these good men that he finds to mentor him and help him along, but obviously he was facing obstacles and insults every single day because of his race. How do those personal convictions help him to endure that day after day? Yeah, uh, he was asked many times how he dealt with uh, racism, and he said in his autobiography, quote, life is too short for a man to hold bitterness in his heart. Guy's inspiring, right? That's something we could all learn no matter what, but especially someone here. I mean, this is not just even losing a job or getting thrown out of a venue. I mean, he could pay with his life if he gives into his temper or does something wrong. I mean, he could, he could lose everything and eventually he's married. So then he has his wife to worry about. And that's hard to watch slights like that. So it really, he was an inspiring man and it's nice to see him have so many positive experiences because he deserves them. You know, you have a couple of other cyclists here, and those are interesting rivalries and compelling. One is Jimmy Michaels and his trainer, Choppy Warburton. They both appear in your book. Talk about them as a way to discuss what we now call performance-enhancing drugs and the role they play. It may shock people to know to learn that back in this period, there were people doing drugs unlike anything we see today. Yeah, a century before Lance Armstrong era, Warburton might have been the first casualty in cycling's long war on drugs. In fact, that era was described as a dope fiend's paradise. And what I mean by that is opium was for sale legally and riders could buy any of 600 legitimate medicines that were laced with opiates. There was actually a form of opium called laudanum, which was very popular, and a form of cocaine called psychic or eagle soup. And some of the biggest advertisers in the cycling industry were patent medicine companies, so newsmen would just keep their mouths shut, effectively creating a code of silence, forbidding them from writing about the addictiveness and the dangers of their products. And it was interesting that early in Taylor's, I mean, even when he was a teenager, when he was living with Munger, and Munger had made that prediction to Zimmerman about Taylor's potential great future, he was careful to insert a disclaimer that he, meaning Taylor, must abstain from drugs and alcohol, and Taylor, unlike many of his competitors, abided. You said that about laudanum. They were encouraging you to have it. It would be something like we have caffeine today, only much more addictive. They were all different flavors, and they would just put it in everything, and you could get your equivalent of a jolt drink, <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. And so Major Taylor doesn't always know that. There's one point in your book where he's hallucinating because he's gotten a hold of some of this stuff by accident. That's right, and that was at the six-day race at uh, Madison Square Garden. 
when we talk about race relations in the U.S., we mark the Civil War and then people often kind of zone out until the civil rights era 100 years later. But there were figures like Major Taylor that made a real positive difference in between. Tell us the impact his success had on the way fellow citizens viewed African-Americans and mention some of those challenges he faces as he's on tour. It's It has to be a huge difference going from somewhere like France, where he's treated as an equal, to coming back home and trying to find a hotel or just a restaurant to have a bite to eat. Yeah. In 1896, uh, talk about bad timing for uh, starting a career for an African-American to compete against a white competition. But in 1896, the Supreme Court passed that landmark Plessy versus Ferguson case, which heightened an already hostile racial environment. In fact, it made it worse. And it just turns out that at that exact moment in history, the 18-year-old Taylor turned professional at a six-day race in Madison Square Garden. But reading about Taylor daily in, news, in papers like the New York Times and the Boston Globe and the Washington Post was inspirational to most people, but certainly all black people in the United States who followed his career with keen interest. And, you know, dealing with the racism with Taylor, it started out right out of the gate, obviously, as a, as a child, but in his quest to win the uh, coveted title sprint champion of America. He faced intense racism right out of the gate. In fact, one day in 1897, William Becker, who was the five-mile champion of America at that time, he nearly strangled Taylor to death in front of 12,000 fans at a Massachusetts velodrome. And that racially charged incident received an enormous amount of press coverage in newspapers all over the United States. In fact, so much coverage that at the end of the year, the New York Times wrote, it caused more animated discussion than any other event that year. So most of the racing that Taylor did in his early American career was in the Northeast, but every year as the weather grew colder, the bicycle racing events moved to what was called the Southern Extension. And when that part of the season happened, which was like September, October, he was either not allowed or kicked off at tracks in his hometown of Indianapolis and then St. Louis and Louisville, Kentucky. And while on those tours trying to compete, he was regularly denied access to restaurants and hotels, and uh, we know at least on one occasion forced to sleep in a horse stable. And the worst of it was when he was actually training in Savannah, Georgia, he received a letter on his boarding room doorstep which read, Mr. Taylor, if you do not leave here before 48 hours, you will be sorry. We mean business. Clear out if you value your life. And it was signed by the white writers. And it's interesting, when we were reading that article in that paper on that same day, there was another column in that Savannah newspaper that uh, published another letter of, um, about another story that really described a white man who received a similar letter for teaching piano lessons to a black man. And what he did is he turned that letter over to the authorities and said, asking them to go find and prosecute the senders of the letter. And the only thing they found a week later was his body filled with bullets in a cabin that he had lived in. Yeesh. So during those times, especially in the South, of really severe racial hostilities, a letter like that, especially there in the South, needed to be taken as a shuddering statement of intent. So that is a backdrop to this environment that Taylor was trying to compete in. I want to focus on his career and not just him as a victim of these horrible times and 
and not just focus on him because of the color of his skin. He had many amazing races in his career, did Major Taylor. And I was trying to pick one to ask you about. And then I decided I could put that burden on you and ask you if there's one that really stands out that if you could hop in a time machine and watch from the grandstands in the velodrome that you would really love to see. Well, that's a tough call, but you know, he, he had an amazing uh, experience in Philadelphia in 1897 at that annual convection. When he became a world champion in Montreal in 1899, that was an amazing event. And when he was in Australia in the years of 1903 and 1904, he set attendance records, and it was just, again, amazing. But I, if I had to narrow this down, I'd say the highlight would have to be the 1901, it was like a Seabiscuit versus War Admiral match race that was held in Paris between the gentle Major Taylor and this brash Triple Crown winner Edmund Jocelyn. Taylor was the 1900 American Sprint Champion, and Jocelyn was the 1900 World Champion. So, in the lead up to that race, the French press coverage, and not just the French press, but the German and the American press, covered it like it was an epic black versus white, America versus France, coming together for what many sources said was the most heavily advertised sporting event in European history. And before Taylor's visit to Paris, the average day's circulation of Lavello was around 25,000 copies a day. And in a handful of days prior to and following that race, nearly three quarters of a million copies of Lavello alone were sold. Betting was legal in those days. The money that was wagered on that race was probably a world record. William K. Vanderbilt, who owned the first Madison Square Garden, Harry Thaw, who is a Pennsylvania railroad tycoon, and William Moore, who is a gold rush millionaire, bet as much as $20,000 each on the outcome of that one-kilometer race that was about to take less than two minutes. Now, just to remind your uh, listeners, Taylor would not race on Sundays. So this was a race that was actually held on a Thursday, so the promoters were who were, were worried for three years about fans actually showing up for a non-Sunday race. Well, as it turns out, the, the Parc de Prince track in Paris, which was later used for the Olympics, at that time had a capacity of 18,000 seats, and on that day... They had 28,000 people in the stands on a Thursday and nearly as many fans willing to pay twice, uh, 20 times actually the face value were turned away at the gate. And it must have been something to be there because even though there were 28,000 hysterical fans there from all over the world, there was a reporter who witnessed the start of the race who wrote, it was so quiet one would have thought that one man was the spectator. The silence was sublime. And, of course, you know, when I do my talks around the country and, and I get to this point, people are always wondering, you know, who wins this race? But I have enough sense not to tell them they need to buy the book and read it to find out. <laughs> you can tell why you're in finance. It's a good tease. <laughs> there is a story with this Jacqueline that you can tell us that's kind of amusing and Really, it sounds like it comes out of a movie. Almost unbelievable the life that he lives and the moments that he has and the people that Major Taylor meets. He walks into a bar and he spots this world champion wheelman 
And tell us that story. What's that like? That's a, a tense moment. And it's a sort of a clash of cultures there, too, because, of course, the French are going to be drinking and Major Taylor doesn't touch the stuff. Yeah, exactly. There was a really popular cafe in Paris, France. In fact, it was kind of known as the Wheelman's Cafe. And that's where the weekend warriors would go. And they had this pillar in the middle of the cafe where they would pin maps of the local cycling routes and all that. But on that given day, the two men, one black, one white, one from the new world, one from the old world, one is brash, the other one is reserved, both are skilled boxers, and they started to circle each other like two heavyweight prize fighters. And remember, bicycle racing in France is revered like a religion, and the people who were fortunate to be at that gathering treated the circumstances with the same awe of a papal visit. <laughs> so Jocelyn ends up ordering a bottle of champagne, and he, he asked Taylor to have a toast with him, and it, you know, kind of put Taylor on the spot, but it was the first and the last time Taylor ever put a glass of alcohol to his mouth. In fact, he, he nearly choked on it, and he commented on how awful it tastes. <laughs> and one of the French newspaper uh, reporters who was there that saw that wrote, abstinence must give Taylor spiritual pleasures. Today, we're obsessed with the private lives of our sports heroes, and I guess Major Taylor was spared at least the glare of social media and everybody having a smartphone. But for instance, now Derek Jeter just had to raise a few feet to his fence around his house to keep out gawkers. I wondered how did Taylor, especially once he's married, balance the personal life, having a wife, and this glare of publicity? Yeah, Taylor lived his life in two extremes. One where he dealt with what he called the monster prejudice, which he was introduced to early in life at the Indianapolis YMCA, and that turned out to be the basis of his daily existence while living in America. And then the other extreme was where he was feted and praised in countries all over the world. You know, in America, like for one example, in, in 1900, when Taylor tried to purchase his home in Worcester, he, had, he hired a white power of attorney to do the closing because he knew the seller in the neighborhood of 399 white people would not allow a, a black person to purchase his home. In fact, when the neighbors learned of that, they were outraged, and they actually tried to buy his home back from him uh, by offering him another home uh, in another place of this town, which they thought would be more suitable. So as it turns out, of course, he was the best neighbor that they could possibly have hoped for, and then you contrast that to 1903 when Taylor arrived in Australia. Thousands of people in hundreds of boats greeted his ship as it sailed into Sydney Harbor. And when they arrived at the pier, orchestras played the Star Spangled Banner and he and his wife Daisy were housed at the Metropole, which was the nicest hotel in Sydney. <laughs> now contrast that to their return to America from that trip. They arrived in San Francisco with, by the way, their two-month-old baby girl named Sydney, born in Sydney, Australia. And in San Francisco, racism wasn't just common. It was a city policy because, as it turns out, they were booted off a bus, they were turned down meals at several restaurants, and they could not find a hotel that would take them. So, you know, it, it was a terrible tragedy that he had to live like that in America and as a result of living in those two extremes, shortly after that return to America in San Francisco, he actually experienced a mental breakdown and had to take a two-year Greg LeMond-like hiatus from the sport before attempting a comeback that nobody thought was possible. 
yet he was still capable of dominating races in the latter few years of his career. I have one final question for you. Despite all his fame and success and the purses, Major Taylor ends up buried in an unmarked pauper's grave. Your book and I hope our conversation today are ways to start giving him the epitaph he deserves. What do you hope readers of your book will do to help bring Major Taylor's story back into the public mind? And do you think there's a special place for him here since we're kicking off Black History Month in February? Yeah, how appropriate. You know, many readers have written letters to telling me how moved they were to learn of the circumstances at the end of Taylor's life. And your listeners would be interested to know that ironically, Taylor spent the last couple of years of his life living in, of all places, a YMCA in Chicago during the Depression. And when we researched that YMCA, it seemed to be totally appropriate that he ended up at that Y because that happened to be the first African-American YMCA built in the United States, and it was paid for by Julius Rosenwald, the German-Jewish philanthropist and co-founder Sears Roebuck. And not just that why, but we've learned that Rosenwald went on to pay for 27 other African-American YMCAs and 5,387 African-American schools in the poorest rural areas of the South. So that's one connection. The second reason I think it was fitting that Taylor ended up there was because a few years before Taylor's arrival, Carter G. Woodson, who was an African-American historian, stayed at that same Y when he would visit Chicago. And Woodson formed the idea that if whites learned more about blacks, race relations would improve. So in 1926, Woodson started Black History Month. And I was fascinated to learn that he chose February because it contains the birthdays of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, but maybe most importantly, Valentine's Day, a day which represents love and affection. So though he's never been properly recognized for his pioneering role, Few men personify the original meaning and spirit and intent of Black History Month better than Major Taylor. In fact, after all of our research, I think the best summation I can give your listeners of Major Taylor's life were written by a a prominent French sports writer in those early bicycle racing years. And his name was Robert Colquall, who wrote, Major Taylor was the most extraordinary the most versatile, the most popular, the most colorful, the champion around whom more legends have gathered than any other, and whose life story most resembles a fairy tale. (laughs) So a final note uh, before we close, and, and that is that 16 years after Taylor's death, Frank Schwinn of the Schwinn Company learned of his demise, and he actually paid to have Taylor's body exhumed, And there was a second burial uh, was held, and uh, many dignitaries were there, including Ralph Metcalf, who had raced with Jesse Owens in the Berlin Olympics. So today is a tribute. Uh, A beautiful bronze statue of Taylor stands outside the Worcester Library. And our hope is everyone who reads our book will come away with something that inspires them and opens their hearts towards this elite athlete, and nostalgic time period that at one time captivated 
millions of Americans, Europeans, and Australians. Well, Terry Kerber, author of Major Taylor, the inspiring story of a black cyclist and the men who helped him achieve worldwide fame. I am certainly inspired. I want to thank you so much for sharing this American legend with us today. I'm a better person for having met this man. I want to be better still. He's a great example, a great role model, even for somebody who's twice the age he is when he starts out. I hope you and Conrad have great success with the book so more people can draw inspiration from this example and you you can pick up the book anywhere right, and you can find you at your website. Well, thanks, Dean, and I hope your listeners found this exchange interesting, and look for our book on Amazon or in bookstores, uh, or they can go on to our website, which is MajorTaylorOnline.com. Okay, great. And we do put up the Amazon link, but I want people to find the book and get it however you can get it, even if you have to take it out from the library and read it there or put it in a young person's hands. I bet that both the Kerber brothers would be okay with that. They just want to share this great story, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks again. Really, this was a special book, and Major Taylor is going to be riding beside me in his bike for the rest of my life, his example. Thank you. Wonderful. Again, the book is Major Taylor, the inspiring story of a black cyclist and the men who helped him achieve worldwide fame. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you buy, and there's no additional charge in your shopping cart. Once again, the basket on my bicycle is full of thanks to Terry Kerber. Please visit him at MajorTaylorOnline.com or toss a like to the Kerber Brothers page on Facebook. And let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or facebook.com slash history author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next bike ride into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.